I got top top. Top top two poker podcast. Oh, you said top top. I said top. I got top two and a half, five, seven and a half, ten, twelve and a half, fifteen, seven and a half, twenty, twenty, twenty and a half, twenty-five, twenty-seven and a half, thirty-three, two and a half, thirty-five, three and a half, forty-four, two and a half, forty-five, three and a half. And we're back. It feels like it's been forever. Dude, it has been forever. Uh, somehow you still have a cold from like the last five podcasts. Yeah, it's more of a throwback to podcast number one when I was sick. So I think um, it's like almost you plan these things on purpose. Like you only get sick around our podcast schedule or something. Yeah, that's uh, what happens. I just uh, enjoy being sick so much. I plan this. Yeah. Being sick is the worst. I hate being sick and I get sick so often. It's frustrating. I'm pretty sure it's a sign that uh, God is telling you that your immune system can't take that harsh East Coastness, and you need to move out to California. Dude, uh, that's how, that's how you are selling me hard on the California move right now. I know. So let's get everyone kind of caught up because it's been uh, forever and a day. It, you came out here and did some best man stuff. And mm-hmm. I was the best man at your wedding. We rented some exotic cars, and oh, we fun. should probably. I still need to get you the clip from the GoPro of us just like giggling like mad. And, uh, <laughs> racing and the race- Ferrari that didn't know that we were racing. <laughs> so we're cruising down PCH, which is uh, the one by the beach. And I'm driving like a bat out of hell. Absolutely uh, insane. And then we see a Ferrari. And then I can't remember if it was me or you, but I think it was me. I just screamed to myself, oh, we got to race it. We got to race it. <laughs> and you just kept giggling as I was just throttling it and just like bombed past him as he was just cruising. Um, <laughs> then we pull up to him at the next light and they just like look over at us and laugh. Because <laughs> we're, we're in a rental. Scott we're in a rental and they're just like cruising a Ferrari. All right, and you win. He, and you, of course, said, oh, yeah, his wife and him were laughing and I didn't make eye contact because I was so embarrassed. But the <laughs> wife by the way, was, as we pulled up later, like a 45-year-old African-American male. No big deal. Um, yeah, yeah, it's California. Good good call. Well, yeah. Tomato, good. tomato. Uh, and somehow I made it uh, safely into married life. I went off to Jamaica for a couple weeks, which was amazing. Uh, re-entered into my work at LAPC, which is our largest poker tournament of the year i know one of our listeners andrew shout out to andrew he came down had some success in uh in cash games um played a couple of the tournaments and yeah so i've been extremely busy you've been sick what's been what else has been going on with you uh i've just been grinding a lot of cash games lately uh the limit hold'em has been uh especially uh, a lot of action the last couple weeks so really the last like month has been pretty actioned up. Um, I'm grinding out my 250k challenge, trying to make 250,000 in cash games this year. And uh, it's going well. But I did have a bit of a hiccup at the end of January. I played pretty lackluster. And really I narrowed it down to just my mental game wasn't great. I was... I was just playing pretty weak mentally, getting tilted easily, just like soft tilting and not correcting myself. So uh, I kind of that was kind of the uh, impetus for this uh, podcast theme that we're going to be setting the mental game over the next three or four podcasts. Perfect. I mean, I think it's really applicable. I know that uh, even when I play now, I just have those days where I convince myself it's a good day to play, but there's so much other like 
just white noise in my life that I just can't focus and I know that leads to a lot of spewiness or a lot of frustration because, you know, I'm hoping that I just get there or I play online and I just have a good session. Sometimes it just doesn't happen. Um, before we get into the kind of the, the meat and potatoes of this, uh, two other things to share. I, uh, I shared the first story with you, which is I was at, I was at work. I just came back. I was a couple days into it. Wasn't really feeling it. It's so busy at work and we're we're working with the staff we've got and it's a uh, it's hard time of year because a lot of people are getting sick and because um, we've actually had a crazy storm in in California too which is rare um, and like flash flooding but um, I was walking through the floor doing my pre-shift and doing scheduling and someone asked me for a ruling uh, give them a very basic ruling give them an explanation of our house rule and he, he recognized me from the podcast I don't I don't yeah. know who it was I wasn't able to spend much time but he goes hey is Chase out here? And I'm like, uh, there wasn't my badge or anything. I was like, and I had to disappoint him. I'm like, no, I think Chase is just grinding uh, cash games back east. And he immediately looked disappointed. And then he was like, oh, but we love you guys. Uh, oh, that makes top you two smile so much. So, yeah, that's that epic. Was, right in if you're still listening. That's awesome. And um, any of you guys that are California players or come visit me at Commerce, I'm more than willing to spend a little time, buy you a meal, just to identify yourselves, come... Uh, Come say hi. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> That's so cool. Right? Uh, um, and I, uh, Shout out to that guy. Exactly. I didn't even get a name because I was in such a rush. And then I got my my first bad Yelp review. Uh, this lady was going ballistic uh, over something last week. So it's been, it's been kind and of And she a, named you? <laughs> oh, yeah. She, she, <laughs> writes a, she writes two Yelp reviews. So she, write, she wrote one Yelp review of... So the situation was there's three blinds in a limit game, and she said chop to one person, which caused them to fold the hand, and then the other person in the big blind uh, was like, okay, we can chop. So she's still holding on to her cards, because she's in the nine seat and the other person's in the one seat, but she told the, the small blind on the button to the right, oh, we can chop, making him muck his hand, and then she goes, oh, no, no, I just, I wanted to, I was asking the one seat if we could chop his money. And I'm like, no, you verbally made him chop, or you verbally made him fold his hand, so we're just going to chop. So she didn't like my ruling, and she's sitting there holding the game hostage for like five minutes with her card. So I just... Oh, jeez. Over probably like $2 or $7 or something. Yeah, well, $4. So, well, it would have been $2 to her and $2 to the other person. So she dug her So over $2. Yeah, so she wrote a, a nasty little Yelp review, but ironically, a year earlier... She had wrote a nasty Yelp review, and it was pretty funny because it was her in broken English complaining about how our dealers don't speak English, and I was just like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, she sounds very reasonable. Yeah, so it's, it's been kind of a fun week. Definitely the hardest part about your job, from my experience, is just dealing with unreasonable requests from people, and just you just can't get around it. You just take it and <laughs> just live with it. It's can be miserable though when you're going through it yeah yeah i mean it's okay i mean there's for the most part you learn that certain people they don't really they don't really want anything other than to just complain uh, one of my bosses he'll just go up to players and just say um what resolution are you seeking <laughs> and he'll just he'll just ask them that and a lot of times they don't have an answer because they just want to complain to complain but uh, uh you know it's that's part of uh poker in the casino industry as a whole. All right, stop whining. Let's get into uh, mental games. So, 
Uh, just in general, we're going to be going mental game for the next like three to four podcasts and going to have at least one guest coming on. I'm not going to not going to share until we confirm and get it all scheduled. But so we're going to have one or two guests coming and we're going to stretch this out over three or four podcasts because it's like a really big subject. Don't you think, Drew? Oh, I absolutely do. I mean, I think no matter what stage you are um, in your career or uh, however you uh, I guess take poker like for me I'm just I'm pretty much resigned and happy to be a casual player I think all of us need to uh, keep reassessing where our mental focus is and sometimes that's in a specific sense and then sometimes that's in a general sense of just do we approach the game correctly or did we approach that session correctly um, it's just a very broad su- subject but I think we're going to try to pick and choose um, some very applicable I guess today we're going to go over two different models, but I think um, we're just going to try to give you guys some nuggets that have impacted your life, I know, Chase, and then... Yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be kind of more um, theoretical and kind of an overarching look at learning today and how that affects our mental game, and then we'll get to more some more like meaty, practical uh, kind of application of the stuff we're talking about today in uh, future pods. So I'm pretty pumped. I think it'll be a really good series. Yeah, and it's something that you're so much your win rate is tied to your mental game because if you have all the strategic knowledge but you can't apply it or you're only applying it X percentage of the time because you're not playing well due to mental game I mean there's just so much win rate that can be won or lost in mental game and as tough as the games are it just needs to be one of your focuses and I found that out in January I was playing my mental game sucked and it was definitely showing in my, my results yeah, and I think I think something we're going to go over, one of the most, um, I would say, desirable characteristics for uh, a poker player, I think, is is self-awareness, which I think goes hand in hand with, with mental game and with, like, learning models in general. You know, you always see those sci-fi movies, I know I talked to you about it, where they build these robots and then it, it becomes, you know, self-aware. And that's really the goal of a lot of these creators. Um is that that's what separates the difference between like sentience and non-sentience. And I think the the importance of that is as poker players, we need to be very self-aware and continually, continually reassess where our mental game is at because I completely agree with you. I think it's the place where we probably leak the most money because, you know, tilt certainly falls within that. Um, discipline learning and outside study. I mean, there's, it's just so broad, but today we're going to touch on, um, uh, I guess it's from Jared Tendler's book, which I, yes, truth, I I'm definitely going to plug, read, plug Jared Tendler's book. It's called the mental game of poker. It's a mental game of poker and the mental game of poker two. Um, they're both different and the mental game of poker two kind of adds on to the mental game of poker. So I would recommend you check out both of them. I did them on audiobook. They're just like, they're awesome to have. I think they're the best mental game book out there. And uh, he's a sports psychologist guy with like a degree in psychology and very, very good stuff. So the first one we're going to be doing is the adult learning model. So Drew, why don't you give us a quick recap of the ALM? Okay. So... I'm just going to give you guys a quick snapshot, and then Chase is going to get a little bit more in-depth, uh, point by point. But Jared Tendler essentially breaks this down into four pieces or four parts. 
The first he labels unconscious incompetence. So this is this is where all of us begin, uh, especially with a new strategic game like poker or if we were going to learn something that's completely brand new to us and we're trying to just feel ourselves out. So that's where everyone starts. Um, it, the next level is conscious incompetence. This is where your past being a complete noob and you're starting to become aware of different aspects of the game, starting to even be aware that there is strategy and that there's, quote, good plays, bad plays, and you're starting to like interface with that type of an information set. The third phase is conscious competence. Now, that's where you might be aware of certain areas that you struggle, um, and you can consciously overcome it. You can say, oh, man, I know that when I drink alcohol, which I like to do, I play really bad. So you refuse the beer. But that's something you're consciously having to do. And then the last level um, is kind of like I was talking to Chase about, like the M- old school like NBA jam, when he's on fire. When you're... <laughs> like, oh, I should have that sound clip. He's on fire. Right? Like Boom, shot clock. <laughs> exactly. Well, you, you can just keep doing it the whole podcast. But it's unconscious <laughs> competence. So you're doing the correct things, but you're doing them unconsciously. So there's such second nature that you just know uh, this is the correct play strategically or this is the right thing to do situation by situation. So those are the four levels. Chase, why don't you give us a little bit better context and go into a little more depth? Let's do it. So step one of the adult learning model, unconscious incompetence. So this is this is where everything starts, right? So when you get into we're going to use poker because poker is an easy example. You don't know what you're bad at. It's kind of like the you don't know what you don't know. Well, this is where you start. So things like uh, when you get into poker, you think, oh, any ace must be good. And you don't know that, oh, playing an ace from early position is a bad idea. So you're unaware that you're incompetent in like your early position opens. And uh, this is, I mean, this is nothing to be ashamed of, and we're all going to be in this area to start with and across different parts of our game. There's things, I mean, no matter what level you are, even if you are very good at poker, there's things that you're doing wrong that you're not aware of doing wrong. And that's okay. So that's uh, that's stage one of the adult learning model, unconscious so, incompetence. So it's important to know that there's maybe different aspects of the way we approach the game that fall into these different categories. So it's a little bit incorrect for us to look at ourselves as in every way, oh, I I fit this stage. So it's not really built that way that where maybe our preflop strategy um, in limit hold'em is is highly competent and is one of the later stages, but maybe in like pot limit Omaha, we're leaking badly and then we still have some of those poor assumptions. So that would fall into like unconscious incompetence is that kind of sure yeah when we when we're looking at the this learning model um we apply this to like very uh we take a micro look so like our uh opening range from early position can be we could have unconscious incompetence in that we don't know that how bad we're playing it whereas we know that we can't we can know that like oh we shouldn't call the river with king high so we could be we could be competent at that part so this is this is going to be a very um, we're we're not as a whole going to be at one one step or another of this learning model. This is applied to each specific area of learning. 
So it is like NBA Jam. So you can lose your he's on fire and go back down to... <laughs> you can totally level down. Okay, okay. Just want to be clear. Continue. <laughs> All right. Step two of the learning model is conscious incompetence. So this is like your light bulb moments when you start to become aware that like, man, I'm losing a lot of money opening ace three offsuit from early position. Hmm, I wonder if I shouldn't do that. Or say you like read an article that says, hey, dummy, don't play a bad ace from early position. So this is where you become aware of of your um, poor strategy or your leaks. And there's... This is like kind of the next step to the starting point. So now you're aware of it. It doesn't mean that you fixed it. You're just aware of it at this point. And honestly, getting from unconscious incompetence to this step to where you're aware of it is almost the biggest battle in terms of like some people just have too big of an ego to even get to this step. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, like with the self-awareness I was mentioning earlier, it's one of the hardest things because... You know, working in the poker industry, um, you end up dealing with, like, I have a lot of friends who are ex-poker players professionally. Some of them had some success, but the game has evolved and changed to people who have all these crazy notions about why they win, why they don't win. And, you know, like last night I had a guy call me over to 2040 Limit Stud, and he's like, and he, and he was dead serious. He's like, Andrew, Andrew, you got to watch this. You got to watch this. And... He's like, I, I've had the, he's playing five-handed. He's like, I've had to bring in eight times in a row. You see, it's your dealer's fault. It's your dealer's fault. Um, and he, he has no idea why he's losing. But, you know, he's one of the players that plays probably 80, 90% of hands. But he blames it on the dealer. So one of the hardest things for us to do is really be aware of some of the reasons why we're playing poorly or even if we're playing well, just areas that we can uh, improve on in general. It's one of the biggest links between, I guess, stage one in this model and then stage three and four. Yeah, right on. So let's move on to stage three. So now that we're aware of our incompetence, so say we read an article that said, hey, don't play ace three offsuit early position. Uh, now maybe we do some studying. This is where we actually put in the work of becoming competent, putting in, say, um, some work on our preflop strategies and our opening ranges so that through study now we can consult okay here's going to be my opening range from early position it's going to be sevens plus and ace 10 suited plus and this is where we have to when we're in session when we're playing we have to expend our mental energy to recall okay here's my opening range no this hand isn't in my opening range Oh, ace, ace three, I really want to play it, but no, you have to, you have to really spend your mental energy. So a good way to know that you're in this stage is that you're kind of going through those mental thoughts as you're playing. It's kind of like when you're, when you learn something new and you're trying to apply it. Now, the thing about this stage is though, that you have to be putting mental energy into it or else you lose it. So if you get frustrated, you revert back to your old ways. So when you're tilted, oh man, that that offsuit ace from early position looks plenty good enough. Um, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna lose this part of your game uh, and revert back to those earlier steps when you're frustrated. I complete completely see myself in this because I remember when I was playing a lot of limit games, and 
back probably uh, five, seven years ago when the games were better and I was I was winning. Um, but even then, like I could do things that were I knew were incorrect. Like I'm like I I think there was a time in my life where I maybe never threw away a pair of pre flop and limit hold them, which is just awful, even in certain games like from any position. But I remember how hard it was, uh, and as silly as it sounds, just throwing away those small pairs, like you know, under the gun, under the gun, plus one, just because I'm like, well, if you flop a set, you know, I mean, uh, in limit hold them, you really aren't getting pre-flop going to get blown off your equity, but it's still really poor when you're having to call three or four bets cold because um, you're in an action game. And remembering the discipline that I had to learn just to be able to throw those away, I mean, or, you know, an ace wheel suited, those types of things. So I think, you know, for me, it rings a, or it um, it rings true, especially with preflop. I think is one of the easiest examples of this. There's things I think almost all of us do. Like even you and I have had conversations when you're playing bad of certain hands, certain hand types that we're either three betting with, we're limping with, we're overcalling with that we absolutely know we shouldn't. But it's that mental discipline of focus that makes us sure up our game and fold or you know, make the correct play. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. So a good indicator that you're in this learning stage instead of the final learning stage is that you do revert back to your bad habits when you do that. So keep that in mind. That's a very practical way to just identify which learning stage you're in. So stage four, uh, unconscious competence. So this is like the Holy grail of the learning model, according to, uh, this book, The Mental Game of Poker. So this is when it kind of just becomes second nature. When you've spent so much time studying it and putting it into practice, and it's just kind of ingrained in your thought process, you don't have to give it much thought. So like things like opening ranges that you've you've done enough times and you've got the reps in it, um, you just automatically do it. Um, and the beauty of getting to the unconscious competence stage is that it does happen unconsciously. So it frees up your mind to focus on other things you need to improve on. So let's say you get your opening ranges to the level of unconscious competence, where even if you're tilted, even if you're annoyed, even if you're frustrated, your opening ranges are just rock solid. That's something that's not going to be phased. So that really frees you up to spend more time on like say constructing your three betting ranges or thinking about hey how's this guy trying to how can i exploit this player so the best part about one of the real big benefits about getting to this stage of learning is that it just gives you so much more mental energy for other areas and it lets you push other areas that you need to improve on up the learning uh learning model to uh i mean eventually you want to try to get as many as many aspects of your game to this unconscious level where you're just executing correctly. So Chase, uh, I, I know you and I have gone through this concept. Um, we walked, uh, you've walked me through it and I actually in truth didn't, haven't read, uh, Jared Tendler's book yet, but what does he advocate? And what do you advocate? What's the easiest way for a person to go from the stage three of conscious competence and eventually get to the, the NBA jam. He's on fire level, the unconscious <laughs> competence, where things are just second nature. Everything is just falling into place. Um, could you give us some tools or tips? Because I know I've seen you grow over the years 
And I find myself almost everything being more conscious competence, which I think another thing uh, is it makes it harder to play long sessions when everything you're doing correct, um, unless you're having one of those sessions where you're just running over the table because the deck is hitting you in the face. But the other sessions where it's a struggle where you're having to play correct, it mentally is very draining. You know, so not only is it hard to to be like interfacing with every aspect of the game, which is pre-flop, constructing three betting ranges, trying to you know pay attention to what other players are doing, and all of that. Um, for me, it's always just been very draining, and it means that I'm only going to put in a four to six hour session maximum. You know, which is also a you know kind of a leak. Yeah. Step one: dip your basketball in gasoline. Step two. <laughs> Like <laughs> basketball, and you're on fire, dude. You can be, you can be the center on the three point line. It doesn't matter, dude. You make it every time. Um, <laughs> oh, I got a cough. Hold on. <laughs> oh man, you're very welcome for muting that. I know. Pop it in my ear all morning. <laughs> so, all right. a couple thoughts on this. Uh, one is that you need to just be putting in very intentional time on. Your, the things that you're working on in your game. So that means doing your study away from the table. That means when you're at the table, you need to be thinking through those things. There's also some things that I think we're going to go over in future episodes of very practical things like journaling, um, having a mental game journal, um, doing hand history reviews with peers that you trust to give you honest feedback. Um, so yeah, I think... Uh, just putting in that intentional time and and you just got to put in the work there's not shortcuts to get from like step one to step four or to breeze through the conscious competence step uh it's just going to take some work oh one one more thing that's going to transition into our next subject is you mentioned uh there's so many things that you're thinking about well Possibly one of the problems is that you're not spending enough time on one single thing to get it to that fourth fourth stage of the adult learning model. And instead, you've got like eight things in the third stage in the conscious competence. So your mental energy is being pulled in so many different directions. You're really not giving yourself a chance to get to that unconscious competence stage. Yeah, that that's definitely me. Plus, I'm probably thinking about like 90 other Unpoker related things I'm not supposed to be. So, I mean, right, like major. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> about trying to convince you to buy the life size replica of the Iron Throne with your 250K winnings this year, as well as a Skyline GTR. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> after we uh, rented one for a while. Um, I think one other, one other thing we should bring up this is something you and I spoke about earlier as we prepped this. Um, there is a very thin line between unconscious competence and unconscious incompetence because there's certainly people who uh, we would look at as unconscious certainly and incompetent a lot, but they feel from their perspective that they're unconscious competence if we actually talked them through that. And that's why I think you know you have to have as a poker player in regards to the mental game uh, a community of people around you that you trust, you know, maybe even just personally, but it certainly helps professionally that are really real with you and honest about where you're at. Um, and you also have a, have to have a good level of self-awareness 
Um, as well as we're going to provide you some tools. I think hand histories are great because when you're actually looking at the hands you've played or like in tournaments, you know, the key decisions that busted you out, it's hard to hard to lie to yourself about that if you call off something very light and it's just a terrible call off and you're like, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't really, I guess I wasn't ranging the, my opponent correctly. But I think that that's so key to this model as well and just being a well-rounded poker player. Wouldn't you agree, Chase? Yeah, I totally agree. So like I said earlier, we need to have people that can give us that honest feedback. Um, and certainly we need to work on being honest with ourselves. One thing I would recommend when you're studying is to use tools that are, I guess, going to give you very black and white outputs. So if you're using tools to, say, like range someone on a hand that you played, well, it should be pretty self-evident where you, whether you played the hand well. Um, if your study time consists of like thinking through hands and either positively or negatively reinforcing yourself, well, you're kind of leading yourself into failure because if you're capable, if you were capable of identifying whether it was good or bad, like you wouldn't be asking yourself, you know, like you're just going to self-perpetuate the errors in your thinking if if that's your only study method. Yeah, a lot of uh, us are. World beat, I said a lot of us are world beaters in our mind, but uh, reality and results over enough time told us that we uh, we all have little areas and ways we need to improve. And uh, another thing you guys can all do is you guys are fortunate enough to be listeners of our podcast, and we're backlogged on a mailbag, which we're going to get to later after we present one more um, one more learning model. But feel free to write in too, because I mean we're your sounding board too. We don't mind at all. We're going to try to make sure we get to all the emails at some point i think we've got uh we don't have too many um but over the next two or three podcasts we'll be able to clean out the mailbag and start fresh yeah definitely so i think this does lead in well to the the next model that we're going to talk about the inchworm model so when you were talking about um when we're talking about being in that third stage of learning the conscious competence where we have to expend mental energy to be competent in those areas. Well, the inchworm model kind of addresses that. So the premise is, if you think about, if we were to plot our decisions on a graph over the last like six months or a year, well, most likely it's going to look like a bell, bell curve, right? Because you're going to have some of your decisions were just really, really good, and they're going to be on the the top end, but they're going to be, you know, not as many. Most of your decisions are going to be in the middle, where you're making pretty good decisions. And then some of your decisions are going to be poor. So, I mean, essentially, it's going to be a bell curve. And uh, the inchworm model, if you look at the way an inchworm moves, it pretty much forms a bell curve when it moves because it stretches out the front of its body, latches on, and then it brings the back of its body up, creates a bell curve. And then it stretches out the front of its body to move forward and brings the back end forward. So uh, in Jared Tendler's book, The Mental Game of Poker, he talks about this in terms of learning. So what you're having a problem with when you're when you're looking at all these different ways to improve like the top end of your learning. So you're trying to learn all these different concepts. So you're being you're just trying to pull out the front end of your uh, of your learning. Right. And if you never move up the back end, you're just like not going to get anywhere on the front end. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think you just went Animal Planet on us. 
Um, but it, <laughs> but as a, a tool to visualize things, I think it does make a lot of sense. Um, you know, I, I told you about this, and I think it, it relates a little bit, but I just think it's a cool story. I was reading a book and I, on business um, about completely opposing uh, different concepts and fundamentals in business. One said that the American model uh, is juxtaposed from what people do in Japan, where if you take like someone who's training to be in management or executive, and if they're really poor, like public speaker or communicator, well, in American business, we'd send them to classes, workshops, have them read self-help books, and they would try to do anything and everything to overcome their fear of public speaking and become a better public speaker um, and shore up their weaknesses. Whereas in Japan in, in specific, if you're really good at like math and the technical aspect of your job, but you're just bad at speaking to people, um, that's all you do. You just don't worry about it. Your emails come out butchered. You don't ever speak to the group, and they work with you to improve your areas of strength. And the whole impetus of the book was, you know, both areas or both um, ways of doing business in their extreme are not not good independent of each other. So I think the nice thing about the interim model is we need to be focusing and working on the areas we're strong, but we also need to be evaluating our areas of weakness and looking at it in a linear fashion instead of a binary fashion that they are linked and that the body of it like you said, with a bell curve, most of our, our decisions will, you know, fall somewhere in that spectrum of eh, a little bit on the poor side, eh, slightly good. They're not all, you know, perfect play decisions or abysmal, you know, horrible, horrible burning money decisions. Right. And I think when you, I think the most common is going to be to neglect the, the back end or the things that you're struggling with. And to just because everyone wants to be like some sicko that's so good at poker. But the problem is, if you don't address the areas that you're weak in, you're really limited in how far forward you can progress. Because when we think about poker, you can't you can't just excel in one area. So you can't excel at like your river bluffs when your preflop ranges are off. Because like if you have too many hands in your range, you're going to be way out of whack on your bluffing frequency. So uh, as much as we may want to progress and become the best that we can sometimes we just need to be humbled to work on the things that we're bad at and that's going to really enable us to strive forward towards maybe higher learning or some new things to the game that we haven't really thought about yeah i'm totally with you preach Um, all right let's uh let's kick it over to <laughs> I didn't even tell Drew about that one. Oh my All god! Right, you're the cantina, galactic cantina of uh, of uh, floor calls. So, okay. Drew, we're here. <laughs> oh, you're you so know, she's looking over our shoulder. We're safe. Let's talk about some uh, some drama, some floor call drama. Okay, so our buddy, our buddy Andrew, really good friend of the podcast, and also of your your streams. He recently has uprooted, moved to. To Vegas, um, we're kind of chronicling how he's doing. He's been sending us some emails. Um, the most recent one, he's at a Venetian event, I think uh, a deep stack tournament. He said with a buddy. Um, we're gonna run through some aspects of this because I don't think they're as important, uh, and we're gonna try to every podcast go over a different ruling, or maybe like a house policy. I mean, this can be rulings and rants. I mean, this can just be complaints about how 
poker rooms are run in general. You guys can just write in and have whatever. If we don't have an email corresponding, Chase and I will just find something. But this one comes from Andrew. He's playing with a buddy in a tournament. He's got a situation where, I guess, he's facing a bet, and the dealer says when Hero asks how much a player went all in for, the dealer says eleven fifty. And for those of you that primarily play online, this is fairly common in tournaments because you may go to a tournament that you don't frequent. They might have all these different colors for chips and denominations, and maybe you you just don't know. So you are relying on the dealer. So he asks the dealer how much it is, says eleven fifty. He throws out two one K chips uh, in order to call. Now we're not given complete information in the email, but we have to assume that I guess a bunch of other players fold, and then it's discovered. Um, it doesn't say how it's discovered that the actual amount is eleven thousand five hundred which covers us, covers Hero. It's not two 1K chips. Yikes. Yeah, so so the floor is called, um, and we're wondering whether or not we're now obligated to call. I think the key situation here, and and I'll let you guys know, there's usually two types of houses, and it, it certainly behooves you, especially if you're playing cash, and it's like your local casino that you play in all the time. Um to even go up to the floor staff, like at Commerce, we have a rule book, and just ask them how they rule in situations like this. Certain casinos believe that um, all action is going to be binding. Like anytime you throw in two chips, and they, they take a really strong position with that. Uh, other casinos will take a slightly softer tone, and they'll look, try to look at all different angles on a situation like this and from the player perspective which is the dealer in this situation was the one who verbally misled the player um what makes this probably most difficult is if people have acted behind you so i think in this particular scenario the end of the email said that the ruling at venetian was that they were forced to call off their stack committing themselves after putting two chips across the line and they ruled out a call Go ahead. I wish we had the information of knowing if someone acted behind before they caught it. Because I think if someone acts behind you after you call, whether you knew it was the full amount or not, I don't think you can be given the option to call the, to not call the full amount. Because I, then you're acting on information that you wouldn't have that someone folded behind. So it makes it easier to call it off, right? Do you agree? I, I completely agree. And then there's other wrinkles in this. And that's why, I mean... It's probably a good discussion and it's important if you're transitioning or even if you haven't thought of these things because they can certainly affect you is just to know your house's policy. Like um, at commerce, especially in cash game, if you are trying to stop the action because you notice there's been an error, like let's say you're in the one seat and you can't see and you say, okay, how much is that dealer? They say 1150 and you throw over two chips and then you go, wait, is that a big chip? And you say, wait, 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 wait. And then people act. If the dealer will confirm that story and if on a camera review it can be shown that you're trying to stop the action so a floor can over and make, come over and make a ruling, it's not your fault that the guy to the left like, leaves to go get his dinner break or whatever. So you've tried to correct the mistake. However, if four or five people folded and then it's heads up and then it's discovered, you know those two scenarios are looked at completely differently. But overall, if there's been a bunch of action behind you, um, yeah, it's completely unfair. It's not like you can have all the options retained where now all of a sudden you can just fold um, because maybe the person to your left would have called off if 
you know, it was a fold to them. So I think, I think we don't quite have enough information, but I think that the Venetian call was probably correct if, um, if it did, if there was significant action behind you after you called. Right. Which I think is most likely considering, uh, the way he presented the story, it seems like they didn't notice until it was like, Oh crap, it's way more than I thought. Uh, oops. Yeah, which is, which is tough because even when dealers uh, make mistakes, like even in a cash game when a dealer says, for instance, like uh, turnover, you know, and let's say someone put a raise in, the raise is going to stand. And like a lot of times, even though the dealer as an agent is supposed to be a neutral party in the game will mislead people. Um, or like if someone makes a bluff and they table their hand and the other player doesn't notice and there's like a four flush on the board. I mean, these things happen a lot in like the smaller games. You know, even if a dealer is a player's about to fold says, why don't you turn over your hand, which may cause someone to lose the pot. The house isn't really responsible for that, you know, as bad as that feels for a lot of people. So just just keep that, I think, in mind as you're playing. You know, it's really important uh, as much as you can to make yourself aware of uh, and be personally accountable for the action, the betting amounts, and all that. Uh, it's a really tough spot when you've asked the dealer and they've told you it's a certain amount and you can't see because someone's blocking you or because you're in the one seat or nine seat. But I think the ruling probably in this situation is correct given the information. Agreed. Agreed. Feels bad, man. Andrew, thank you for writing in with that question. Worked out perfect for a new segment. Uh, remember to tip your waiter or waitress on the way out and, uh, you know, say hi to the band. <laughs> um, so next, I think we're going to go through, we've got backlogged a lot on emails. We're really sorry, guys. I know we were asking you to write in and we've taken a little bit of a, almost a two month hiatus because life got busy. I got married um, and Chase has been sick and on his 250K challenge. Um, but you want to walk us through the next one, Chase? Sure. Uh, email. This email's from Jason. So, Jason, and thank everyone for writing in. Really appreciate it, guys. Jason is a Seattle area player playing 1 3 to 5 5 cash games. And Jason says he's been taking 4K a month swings. And one area that Jason uh, wants to get better at is bluff catching more and not being afraid to lose money and make the right play for big bets. So, let's stop here and talk about what Jason's saying here. So he wants to get better at bluff catching and not being afraid to make, to not being afraid to lose money and make the right play for big bets. Well, one, we should have some reasonable fear of losing money. I mean, we're trying not to lose money. Money that we don't lose is money that we win. Um, So I, I don't know if you're going at this right way, Jason and targeting bluff catching more. Um, it sounds like you're kind of looking for reasons to bluff catch. Um, and if you have reasons, then absolutely you should not be afraid to bluff catch. But I'm, I'm a little worried that just the way that you worded the email that you're looking for things that aren't there and you're looking to make these like hero plays. What do you think, Drew? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, we can take it as one of two things, Jason, which is, uh, and we discussed this in, in preparation, I think that when we... When we tell ourselves, like when we go into session and we're saying, man, I'm going to play a tournament or I'm going to play cash game. And we say, I'd really love to, I need to start bluff catching and I need to start uh, occasionally making these hero calls. I think that's probably, we're training our mind incorrectly because I think it's more important that we say, I, I want to make the correct play. 
And there's times where, um, based on bet sizing, based on our, our opponent polarizing their range, or based on them, you know, at showdown bluffing frequently, we're just going to be calling off really light. Like, I, I think you'd have to reference back to podcast number one, where Chase shares with us um, a story of how he ends up calling off villain heads up at, for a series win uh, with pocket twos. Is that correct, Chase? Yeah, pocket twos. Where, where I think there's two ways to look at that. Like, I can look at that and be inspired and be like, oh, man, like, I want to call off really light next session. Um, and that situation may never present itself to me in tournament or in cash, you know. Or, you know, or the way we walk through that that hand, you know, street by street and based on the particular villain, um, was it a hero call? Sure, but, you know, it you didn't have to think that long, even though it was a pretty big decision, because to you, based on the information you had and the logic you were constructing, it just seemed like the correct play. Now, I don't want to sound like we're bashing Jason, so I'll just give you some practical things. Um, if you have a good reason to to make a light call, it's totally fine. But I would want, what I want you to be focusing on, Jason, is what hands are you putting him on? Uh, get away from this like hero call mentality. But if you can construct a logical reason, say, he's going to be playing these hands, and he's going to have more draws than he's going to have value bets here, or say this player has a tendency to like not value bet his top pair on the river and a lot of draws missed. Okay, that might be a reasonable spot to make a, uh, a light call down. But I would just encourage you, Jason, to make sure you have a reason for your call downs. And um, you also mentioned in the email um, your bankroll and not being afraid to gamble. So this, I would definitely go back to talking about bankroll. We, sh- we should be playing games that we're comfortable in. Um, if you're outside your comfort zone, maybe drop down, play more one three, where you're going to be a little more comfortable making these difficult decisions, because these are difficult decisions when you're making a light call downs. So drop down to one three, where it's maybe not going to the money's not going to be weighing on your mind, and just think through these decisions. And um, Jason, I'm sure if you um, spend enough time working on your game, studying, and uh, trying to put people on ranges of hands that you'll be making good decisions, dude. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. I think one thing um, is we both grew up and started playing in Seattle, and Seattle can be tough because I think that, I mean, I I don't keep up with it enough, but I think that there's not that many places. I mean, a lot of local card rooms have closed or consolidated, and there's just some of the tribal, like Muckleshoot, Tulalip, and probably, like, I don't think Snoqualmie has much anymore. So game selection for me in that state was always tough. and they're really stringent about playing online. So whenever possible, what I find myself is if I'm really sweating the swings, um, I need to be playing smaller, if that makes sense. You know, I don't know if this is something you do on the side, casual, you're trying to do for a living, but consider that as well. Um, if the swing is affecting your decision-making in a negative way, that's another thing I would say to, to consider at least. Definitely. Let's go on to Harry from Maryland wrote in and he's got a question for me, Chase. I'm curious if you offer coaching. I do not. This one will be a brief email. I do not uh, do coaching. I've actually never done coaching. I did some giveaways on Twitch where I was just trying to, you know, reward people for checking me out on Twitch and I gave away some free coaching, but um, I've never actually charged for coaching. 
And I've had multiple people ask me, maybe it's something I'll look into in the future. But at this point, I just have too many commitments to uh, get into coaching. But I do like where you're at. I think coaching is very beneficial. I actually just signed up for coaching through my man, Alex Fitzgerald, a.k.a. Assassinato, a.k.a. the hardest working poker player I've ever met. So I definitely think it's beneficial. And, and for all of those of you writing in, I mean, we just get flooded with emails about my coaching. Um, at this time, I'm unavailable for that, unfortunately. But it should <laughs> become available in the future. Um, you know, I'll let all of you know my rate, which is... Uh, quite amazing. So, uh, which is like a sandwich. <laughs> no, stop it. Is a bologna stop sandwich. It. Stop it. All right. uh, moving forward. So, Paul. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, Paul writes in, and this is more for me. Uh, and this is an old email, but we wanted to address it. One thing we're trying to do for you guys is do a little bit more uh, prep work. Uh, because sometimes Chase and I would have these organic speaking points and we won't even have them pre-discussed. But he, he brought up the um, the tax situation, which I kind of like vacillated on um, in what I, I'm to clarify my position. I was talking about what I see happen a lot, but our position on the podcast and individually is that you absolutely need to do what is ethical and what is legal, which is keep detailed records um, not practice any form of tax evasion and claim everything. So, you know, in the best situation, if you have any really detailed questions, you know, Chase and I at best have a little bit of experience with that. You should really go to a tax professional. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would recommend Russ Fox. He is very good. He is a guy that I use and he's actually been on a number of podcasts to talk about taxes. So, uh, get your Google fingers going on Russ Fox. Very good. He's on two plus two as well. Okay. Paul, thank you for writing in, though. Uh, I'm glad we clarified that. Definitely wouldn't want to lead someone astray. We are not lawyers. We are not tax professionals. Go to someone who knows what they're talking about. (laughs) Yes. Um, Go ahead, Chase. Uh, Do you want to walk us through our last email for the day? Yeah, Michael F., my homie. What up, dude? Michael says hi to me like every time I see him at a casino. Uh, Shout out to Mike. Uh, Mike says, I am a low-limit player, 1-2 and 1-3, not because I want to be. The minimum buy-in, as you know, is $100. At this level, is it a mistake to buy in so light? What do you got for me, Drew? Well, I think as we were talking about, I mean, it depends on... It depends on a lot of things. I mean, some people play the short stack well. I think in general, though, something you and I have discussed about this, when we feel that our skill is... When we feel when we feel that we're one of the best players at the table, um, we should be buying in for the full amount allowed. I mean, we should be topping off because we want to get in those situations where we're able to play for stacks against the players um, with lesser skill. So I think in general, it certainly can be a mistake. It depends on the game, your play style, your bankroll. But just realize that when you're buying in for the minimum you're robbing yourself of the ability to make more money in those hands that people play poorly and you play well. The other thing uh, is keep in mind with the lower limit games, and this is all across the nation, um, the rake is higher. So when you're playing smaller pots because of your stack size, the rake is hitting you at a, a greater percentage of your win, if that makes any sense. Yeah, good points. Um, Mike, I think it's a good idea to look at 
A, what are your goals for poker? Is it to just kind of casually grind the pokers? And sounds, But it sounds like you said you're a low limit player and not because I want to be, so it sounds like you want to move up. Um, two, you need to look at your bankroll and see what your bankroll can sustain. Um, I mean, 1-2 and 1-3 are kind of like the entry-level games. You're not really going to find any smaller no-limit games, so that's rough. If that's if that's outside of your bankroll, I mean, maybe play it online and try to really hone your skills there. But I would encourage you, if possible, if it fits within um, your means, to buy in for more. Um, it's going to be a little rough. It's going to be uncomfortable. But getting through and playing through those rough and uncomfortable spots is really going to be where you see a lot of growth. When you get outside of your comfort zone of your minimum buy-in and you're playing a little bit deeper stacked, I think long-term, that's going to set you up better to transition to um, just playing a little deeper. Maybe when you move up to 2-5, you're going to get in more deep stack situations. Um, you're going to have a higher win rate at a deep stack once you get good at it. Now, you if, if you're not a winning player at that stack depth, I mean, obviously, that's short-term, that's going to be bad, but... Um, I would, yeah, I would just say take a look at what you really want to get out of poker, um, what your bankroll can withstand, and uh, kind of just try to make the wisest wisest decision you can there. Agreed. All right. Well, Drew, um, I think that's a wrap, brother. Yeah, uh, feels good. I mean, we're just getting back into the swing of things. We're hoping to turn out more uh, medium-ish to high-quality content for you guys. Uh, and Chase and I are discussing some interesting ways that we want to do that. We want to really commit to getting you guys some some guests that are that you'll be excited about that will help uh, develop our podcast as well as um, I think we're really going to commit to trying to do some series where we stick to one format like the mental game, different aspects of that, at least for the next couple and hopefully get to the rest of our mailbag. Definitely. Also, we're going to be releasing podcasts every two weeks, God willing, uh, schedule permitting. Drew is now a married man. Gotta gotta keep yep. that wife first. But um, we're going to try to put it out every two weeks. Hopefully, I'm not going to be getting sick every two months like I have been. <laughs> but yeah, we're definitely committed to putting out some podcasts for you guys. We are definitely backlogged on emails. We'll try to get to probably do a big email uh, catch up on one of the next couple podcasts. And yes. yeah, like Drew said, a couple guests I have in the works, so stay tuned. I'm not going to release any names till we're final. But yeah, thanks about it. Uh, anything you want to plug on the way out, Drew? Um, not really. Just happy to be alive. You're like bologna sandwich fishing. No. <laughs> Hey, my don't don't pigeonhole <laughs> me with that rate. I don't want to. I don't want a year from now have to be set at that rate when it very well easily could be two Jimmy Johns. You got to be competitive, dude. Amazon did not turn a profit for like five years of operating. Look at them now. You know, I think it's they still a, don't turn a profit. A business model. Uh, I do want to plug a couple things. Hit me on Twitter at chase underscore bianchi. Instagram dot com slash chase bianchi. Two hundred fifty k challenge. You can follow along there. And uh, I'm streaming on Twitch on Sundays, twitch.tv slash Chase Bianchi. That's about it. Uh, let's uh, say bye to the people, and we'll see you next pod. All right. Peace out. Happy grinding.